Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Why should you visit Kings Island? Do it because less time planning means more time for this. Do it to take a one-day family vacation. Do it to catch a serious case of the giggles together. And of course, do it to eat a funnel cake the size of your face. Because here at Kings Island, doing something just for the fun of it is all the reason you need. Right now, everyone pays kids price. Kings Island tickets just $45 online. When it's time for an adventure on the open highway, one quick call to American Family Insurance gets you headed in the right direction. Our travel peace of mind package is there if you encounter a bump in the road. From roadside assistance to rental car coverage, we have you covered. Find a local agent or get a quote at amfam.com. American Family Insurance. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, SI and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. This episode is powered by Poddex. Poddex are unique interview questions and episode starting prompts in the palm of your hand. So whether you're a new podcaster or existing broadcaster looking to grow your audience and have more meaningful conversations, you're going to want to check out Poddex. Now, if you want to get 10% off your order right now, you can go to poddex.com and type in coupon code, what's the code? Larry21. Yes, that's the code. Check out poddex.com. Take your podcast to the next level. Welcome to the Cinema Gold Show. I'm your host, Larry Lease. Today we're diving into the latest box office news, movie news, and streaming news from around the industry. Welcome to the Cinema Gold Show. Welcome to the Cinema Gold Show. I'm your host, Larry Lease. In today's news, we're diving into the latest box office report and giving our thoughts on the latest episodes of Strange New Worlds and Kenobi, and also giving our review of Paramount Plus's newest original movie, Jerry and Marge Go Large. But first, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Pondex, for sponsoring this episode. Pondex are a unique tool to help broadcasters, podcasters engage with their audience and create new content. Check them out today at pondex.com and use the promo code Larry21 for 10% off your order. I'd also like to remind you that we have merch available. The link will be in the description. And if you use the promo code SUMMER25, you can save 25% off your order. Check it out today and support the show. And now, on to our first pick. Even with Disney's Toy Story spinoff, Lightyear debuting in theaters over the weekend, Jurassic World Dominion still managed to top the box office charts for the second week in a row. Jurassic World Dominion scared up another $58.7 million domestically over the weekend. The domestic total for this particular trilogy's final film is now sitting at... 
plus. <clears throat> Two hundred forty-nine million. Excuse me. Worldwide Jurassic World Dominion has thus far gobbled up six hundred twenty-two million. The film inching its way to the billion-dollar mark that both previous movies ultimately ended up surpassing. While Dominion similarly hit that billion-dollar mark when all is said and done, we're going to be we're gonna definitely uh, keep a close eye on the charts in the coming weeks, and of course, we'll keep you posted. From director Colin Trevorrow, Dominion takes place four years after Isla Nublar has been destroyed. Dinosaurs now live and hunt alongside humans all over the world. This fragile balance reshapes the future and determines once and for all whether human beings are to remain the apex predators on a planet they now share with history's most fearsome creatures. And now, on to, of course... I'll review the latest episode of Strange New Worlds. Truth be told, I keep waiting for Star Trek Strange New Worlds to disappoint me. Because while certain aspects of both Discovery and Star Trek Picard have been wonderful, both shows have had their fair share of rough patches in recent seasons. Moments where watching them felt a lot more like an obligation than it did a joy. But we're seven episodes into this season of Strange New Worlds, two-thirds of the way through its inaugural run, and it's still incredible. In fact, I'd probably argue that this show is that rare series that is actually getting stronger with each episode. It relates to get to know these characters better and watch their relationships grow. This is a lot to say that The Serene Squall is another fantastic and deeply enjoyable hour, a rollicking space adventure with serious emotional underpinnings, and a story that shows us why this crew is so damn good together, even as it pulls off a complicated bait-and-switch plot. Ostensibly, the story follows the Enterprise on what first appears to be a humanitarian mission, summoned by a Dr. Aspen to resupply some in-need colonists on the edge of Federation space. That no one else seems inclined to help. Translation, Christopher Pike, Catnip. Dr. Aspen warns them of the presence of some dangerous space pirates in their supposedly fear-inducing black pearlesque ship, the Serene Squall. For those of you playing along at home that immediately guessed this story was going to lead to a large portion of the Enterprise crew getting kidnapped by those space pirates after a dramatic chase, well, it gold star you. Pike, Una, Leon, Ortegas, and a handful of other crew members beam aboard the supposedly hijacked colonist ship only to learn that it's an ambush and they walked into a trap. The pirates plan to take over the Enterprise, sell the crew into slavery, and hand the ship off to the highest bidder among the lawless entities that crawl the edges of Federation territory. That this all actually turns out to be a rather hilarious interlude in which Pike withstands getting tortured long enough to incite a casual mutiny among the pirate crew by way of the age-old combination of good southern cookie cooking, excuse me, and catty gossip. Every week, Anson Mount is great, but there's something kind of magical about the way he depicts the deployment of Pike's good old good, good old boy charm to ferment unrest among the pirate crew. We've only known this cast for seven episodes, but the chemistry between this group of actors is so darn good. From the easy way they all play off one another while lamenting the poor quality of the Remy the Orion's cooking, 
to their quick thinking collaboration on the bridge as they brainstorm ideas to get themselves out of a life or death trap. As a character, Pike is always going on about collaboration and listening to others and encouraging out-of-the-box thinking. It's really nice to see that this is not just a line he uses, but a legitimate leadership philosophy that he implements on the regular. Meanwhile, back on the Enterprise, Spock, Chapel, and Dr. Aspen are doing their best to secure the ship, with the help of some Vulcan nerve pitches. The nurse's handy sedative injector and a whole lot of luck, but Dr. Aspen, as it turns out, isn't exactly who they say they are and betrays them both at the perfect moment. Turns out they are actually Captain Angel of the Serene Squall, and they've stolen Dr. Aspen's identity and concocted this elaborate ruse all so that they might get a chance to take over the Enterprise, kidnap Spock, and trade him for the Vulcan prisoner. That is apparently their lover. For all that Star Trek's Strange New World is built on in its weekly space adventures, and this one does have little old pirates after all, the show deserves applause for the way it is deftly weaving long-term emotional arcs and characters throughout each installment in ways that are increasingly rewarding to watch. This season, we've seen Spock question his identity, both in terms of how to best reconcile his human and Vulcan halves, and how that impacts what kind of man he ultimately wants to become. Part of the reason that Aspen and Angel's portrayal hits so hard emotionally is that the character spends half the episode giving what is honestly, honestly fairly decent advice to Spock about his ongoing internal struggles. And he's the only one forcing himself to make a binary choice between the two halves that make him whole. Then he can forge a new path and embraces both sides of who he is. Perhaps we should have guessed from the moment that the Serene Squall gave the episode opening voiceover to Spock's fiance, Tipering, that the Vulcan Angel was trying to rescue would be a familiar face. But the fact that it's Spock's half-brother Cybok adds another emotional wrinkle to proceedings. As to the f- fact that Tipering knows her intended well enough now to understand that his last-minute confession of an affair with Chapel was a ruse. Look, I know Spock and Tipering are canonically doomed by the time Star Trek series rolls around and all, but they are truly such fabulous partners together. Their relationship is being given so much depth and treated with so much respect and care that you can't help but hope that maybe somehow these two crazy kids are going to work it out. Then again, the chemistry between Ethan Peck and Jess Bush is also outstanding. So maybe I'm just being spoiled for choice on the Spock romance front. I don't know. At any rate, this is certainly not the last we'll see of these characters or these subplots. So this is me trying to trust that this story is going somewhere great. And hey, hasn't let me down yet after all. So I'm going to leave this episode with... Um, it's going to be five out of five stars. It was a really good episode. Let us know in the comments section below. What did you think about this episode of Strange New Worlds? And of course, hit that thumbs up button. If you like our videos, subscribe to the channel for even more videos and hit that bell notification button to be notified of our future videos. And now... If you want to support the show, you can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash cinemagold. Now on to our review of Obi-Wan Kenobi at 5. We have reached episode 5. It's just mere steps away from the very end. 
Where's the bar when it comes to Star Wars television? Obi-Wan Kenobi 5 wants to evoke the energy and higher budget of the movies slotting into both the prequel and original trilogies. With no holds barred aplomb, but it can't quite pull off the visuals. It's a pity that Obi-Wan Kenobi hasn't established enough of an identity to keep me from missing the much more cinematic The Mandalorian. Still, Part 5 is very entertaining, hooking the show into the larger Skywalker story with good thematic awareness and some unexpected twists. The Empire has found the Rebels on Jabim. Leia's hack droid Lola sabotages the base's power under orders from Reva. As a reward for her efforts, it seems the third sister finally gets what she wants. Darth Vader names her Grand Inquisitor and puts her in charge of retrieving Obi-Wan and Leia. Throughout the episode, Obi-Wan recalls a practice duel with Anakin that reveals Vader's strengths and weaknesses. The decision not to digitally de-age either Ewan McGregor or Hayden Christensen was a choice between two uncanny options. Definitely comes off as a better one. Makeup and the fact that the two men haven't aged too much since their last appearances in 2005 make the scene look like it could be a cut moment from Attack of the Clones or the Clone Wars. It's an absolute treat for prequel fans. Back into the present, Obi-Wan digs into Reva's Force presence enough to discover her backstories. As many fans theorized, she was one of the younglings shown in the Order 66 flashbacks. It turns out that Reva has been nursing her anger at Obi-Wan as Anakin's master for never preventing the massacre. But her main target is the Sith Lord who killed her family of younglings. She's playing a very long game trying to stab Vader in the back when the opportunity presents itself. Obi-Wan tries to offer Reva a chance, distracting her in the process to buy the Jabim refugees time to figure out their escape. His plan partially works, though, not before the good guys take some casualties. Tali goes down, fighting in a moving scene reminiscent of Rogue One. Leia restores the base's power in time for the good guys to narrowly escape. But when Vader finally arrives and Reva confronts him, he toys with her before stabbing her in the gut and revealing that the Grand Inquisitor is still alive. Left to die in Jabim by the Empire, Reva finds Obi-Wan's broken comm link with a message from Bale, revealing that Obi-Wan was protecting another child on Tatooine. Seems like she's headed there in the finale next week. It's almost painful to compare this episode's straightforward emotional parallels to the Book of Boa Fett's far messier back to flashbacks. The practice duel between Obi-Wan and Anakin does so handedly what Boba's glimpses of his own childhood attempted to do to parallel the past with the present. It isn't even subtle. There's literally a reflection on the floor of the room. But as a glimpse into what feels like a deleted scene from the prequels, it works. Unfortunately, the sets continue to be one of the few weaknesses of the show. The Jabin base is a rekin, a reskin, I should say, of the hero's fortifications from The Empire Strikes Back and The Last Jedi. And it's impossible to ignore the styrofoam look of the cave. The camera work often frames this location with symmetrical, cold competence, giving it less of a lived-in feel than Star Wars has at its best. It's almost a problem of scale, as if the camera is constantly looking down on these locations instead of operating from a high level. The franchise is still making film history with the experimental combination of practical sets, digital painting, and the volume, but the scenes show more in Kenobi than in The Mandalorian. 
Mandalorian also still takes the prize for the best TV combat sequences, although the duel between Vader and Reva achieves some impressive characterization. Vader's utter disinterest in the fight going so far as to never draw his own lightsaber perfectly gets across that he's an unstoppable juggernaut, like the duel between Vader and Kenobi earlier in the show. The way characterization is shown through the swings of a lightsaber, or lack thereof, is exquisite. It all looks distinctly like it's happening on a stage. More fascinatingly, obscure names carved into the rock don't make that place feel any more lived in. The reveals about Reva's motivations directly comment on Obi-Wan and Anakin's legendary heroism. She's essentially operating on head cannons. It's a pillar of her life that she believes Kenobi doesn't really want to kill Vader or save the Jedi he supposedly champions. At best to her, he's an absent parental figure. Into Vader, Reva is boring. The fact is, her attempts to break the cycle of violence just play directly into it. It's Sith tradition to try to kill your master, practically inquisitive protocol to try to rise up the ranks. Maybe this is why Vader is so wonderfully bored when Reva finally does attack him. He doesn't care about her backstory, about her headcanons, about him. He doesn't even necessarily care about Obi-Wan in the way Reva thinks he does. Inevitably, Reva's characterization exists in service of Obi-Wan. At times, I wanted her to be more meaner, if only for more chances for Moses Ingram to show her rage. What if, instead of biding her time by Vader's side, she had in fact committed her own atrocities? Giving her either more to atone for or more darkness to embrace. It's a little harder to buy that both Reva and Vader would have been okay with their stalemate for ten years. Speaking of time, six episodes turns out to be the perfect length for Obi-Wan and Leia adventure. Any more than this, and Leia staying out of sight would be too convenient. Any less, and we wouldn't have enough time to get to know side characters like Tala. There's definitely discussion to be had about who in the Star Wars canon gets the luxury of merely metaphorical death. Reva's central role in how earned Tala's tragedy is is mean Tala doesn't feel fridged here. Although Obi-Wan's perspective on Reva's plan feels a bit model by the end. The show continues to keep me hooked. For all that I mentioned, and its lack of identity earlier, it does seem to have a distinct understanding of what it wants, which is to put the Obi-Wan and Anakin relationship first, and to lean into the Skywalker lore as much as the Mandalorian avoided it. So in conclusion, I'm going to leave it with uh, 4 out of 5 stars. And now, on to you of Jerry and Marge Go Large. This is actually a film I just watched, I think it was yesterday, that I just kind of stumbled on after watching a uh, trailer for it. It's available on Paramount, which we actually have a special going on in Paramount. The link will be in the description. If you use that link, you can support the show. Sign up today. It's kind of odd that almost every movie about gambling is actually pretty good, if not great. Um, I mean, you got Owning Mahoney, Maverick, Casino, California Split, The Card Counter, The Cooler, Mississippi Grind, The Cincinnati Kid, The Sting, The Hustler, The Color Money, Rounders. Maybe the best poker movie of them all are actually great pictures, a lot of them. Even those, even those films tangentially related to gambling, such as Rain Man, Lockstock, and Two Smoking Barrels, 
and House of Cards garner excellence as if by proximity to the subject. Unfortunately, Jerry and Marge go large. Might be the exception to the rule. The Paramount Plus original certainly has its charms and will likely win over anyone who doesn't mind a little cheese with their sap. But its aesthetic sometimes feels like a lifetime original movie. Looking at director David Frankel is an easy gauge for one to tell if Jerry and Marge go large is their cup of tea. If someone loved his films, Marley and Me, Hope Springs, and One Chance, then they'll likely enjoy this. Frankel has a way of bringing in incredible actors and having them read subpar dialogue in the most convincing way possible. He's worked with Meryl Streep, Owen Wilson, Will Smith, James Corden, Jennifer Aniston, and numerous other master stars, and somehow always gets good performances, even from the lamest material. He mostly does the same with Jerry and Marge Go Large, which features Bryan Cranston and Annette Bening. As an elderly couple staring down the gray-haired barrel of retirement, with a bit of a... Oh, what would you call it? Probably a way beyond midlife crisis, but a post-retirement life crisis. Rain Wilson, Larry Wilmore, Anna Camp, and Michael McKean all show up as well and do their best with what ultimately amounts to a... particularly uh, sweet hour and a half. Jerry and Marge Go Large is based on an excellent and lengthy article written by Jason Fagone for the Huffington Post, which recounts the wild true story of a pair who took the mostly Massachusetts lottery system for $27 million over the course of nine years, thanks to some good math. Jerry discovered a flaw in the system for the cash windfall games, where the odds favor the buyer the more money you spend. Soon, Jerry and Marge are pooling together their town's money and growing it exponentially. Their story sometimes feels like the sort of true crime series and movies based on magazines and newspaper articles that keep popping up all over the place these days. Except nothing Gerald, Gerald and Marge Selby did was actually criminal. In fact, they saved their small town by doing it. That's what makes Jerry and Marge go large different from a lot of these other stories in super Saturn as a result. It's a feel-good twist on the type of brilliant scheming scene in docuseries like Make Millions. Nobody goes to jail, nobody's life is ruined, and a happy folksy town is saved. It's all very nice and refreshing to see good things happening to people. However, this complete absence of stakes, major conflict, and any real consequences make Jerry and Marge go large completely lacking in suspense or drama. Get, give or take an obnoxious Harvard dweeb with no personality other than the spoiled rich kid who also tries to game the lottery. This all leaves the viewer stuffed on good cheer, but without any substance. It's the equivalent of binge eating two pounds of chocolate, a feature-length film made up of empty calories. The focus on Jerry and Marge is actually quite small. Brad Copeland's script does try to avoid this by instead going much smaller and focusing on the relationship between Jerry and Marge, using the lottery scheme as a backdrop to rekindle the rom romance in the old married couple. Through this lucrative gaming of the system, the couple finds a new lease on life. As Jerry says in the original article, you gotta realize I was 68 years old, so it just gave me a sense of purpose. Soon, Jerry and Marge are dancing romantically in a gas station. 
Springsteen's glory days is blaring to a montage of the Apple couple winning money and the two are strengthening their bonds with their grown children and learning more about their town. It's all very sentimental, filled with cheesy one-liners and smothered with sappy musical cues that never end. Of course, this might be the exact type of movie some people want to see. Since conflict generally guides every type of film, Jerry and Marge Go Large could be the antidote some viewers are looking for in a world already filled with enough conflict. I mean, come on, it's 2022. We've had more conflict than we know what to do with. I think we're good with an area. It also tells a story about a corrupt system, a group of small town little guys, average Joes who beat the system, actually have their happy ending. In a world of massive income inequality, growing class consciousness, and near-unanimous hatred of politicians and corporations, there's probably some vicarious satisfaction in simply seeing the aforementioned little guy win for a change. Cranston and Benning do about as well as they can with the material. Benning's character is ridiculously underwritten and almost offensive way. We know practically nothing about Marge, and she simply exists as a narrative device here, when in fact, Marge Selby seems like a charming and endearing person. Benning injects some energy and fire into the proceedings, but the script does not do her justice whatsoever. Cranston seems to combine his fun loser dad routine and Malcolm in the Middle with the smarter-than-he-looks scheming of his Breaking Bad character. His face is always wonderfully expressive, and he does a good job portraying Jerry's weariness. At having lived nearly seven decades without being recognized as an extremely clever, wonderfully kind, and exceptional person. He gives off a lot of aw shucks small town charm here, even if his dialogue is often clunky and dull by no fault of his own. And then we finally get to see him again. Rain Wilson is back. Essentially playing Rain Wilson, which he's exceptionally amazing at. Will Moore is an Incredible political comedian and brilliant thinker, but he's, I hate to say it, arguably a terrible actor. Jake Monaco's musical score is really unfortunate. Monaco is very talented and great for providing nonstop light music for kid movies such as A Cinderella Story. If the shoe fits, and he can provide some of the best sentimental schmaltz for movies that need it. Think Like a Dog, A Cinderella Story Christmas Wish, Wish, but his airy, sappy score actually makes Jerry and Marge go large worse. But again, this might all be what some less cynical people want. One person's sappy cheese might be another exquisite fondue. And what's grotesquely sweet for one reviewer, like myself, might be a perfect palate cleanser for another. And of course, Jerry and Marge go large is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Check the link in the description to a great deal for Paramount Plus today. And before we go, we'd also like to remind you, if you want to support the show, buy us coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash cinemagold. Your support helps the channel grow, upgrade our equipment, take the show on the road, which we hope to live stream from CinemaCon, uh, Fan Expo in Texas, uh, San Diego Comic-Con, um, D23 in California and your support can help them make that happen as well as hire new hosts and writers and be able to pay them and as always thank you so much for watching and listening we will see you next time you have been watching the Cinema Gold Show follow us on Twitter at Cinema Gold Show 
Find us on Instagram at The Cinema Gold Show. And on Facebook. Facebook.com slash The Cinema Gold Show. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's favorite free online social casino. You too could have the chance to win life-changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice of the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's favorite free online social casino. You too could have the chance to win life-changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice of the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com.